Excellent singing church. You may have a seat. And as you uh, grab your seat, also grab a copy of the scriptures and then turn to the Old Testament's historical book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, if you uh, are new with us, we've been um, just working our way through some pretty key Old Testament texts. We finished our exposition of the book of Philippians, and then we'll be in a number of key Old Testament texts, and then we'll eventually land in uh, the book of Jonah. But this morning, we're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, um, some of you have been to our home, the Avila home, whether that's Taco Tuesday or just hanging out, and we normally like to play a card game. The card game we play is uh, called Bohemi. Bohemi is a lot of fun. I get maybe probably a little too competitive with it. But in that card game, there's a couple special cards. There's the number two card, which is like the trump card, and then there's the number four card, which we call the, the social card. And oftentimes when you throw down your social card, it's just a way to get to know people around the table. And so you ask questions like, what's your favorite movie? What's your favorite color? What's your favorite dessert? What's your favorite place to visit? And I often like to throw in there, what is your favorite chapter in the Bible? And it's just interesting as you go around the room to kind of hear what some of the favorite chapters are. And We've covered a couple that I've heard mentioned. Genesis 22 is typically in there. Psalm 1. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is another great one that many people love. Of course, there's Psalm 23. And many of you have uh, favorite chapters that you love to go to and you visit often. Well, one of the chapters that I've never, ever heard during the favorite chapter portion of Bohemia is 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the question is, I wonder why people don't maybe know this chapter well. I mean, you could have easily got the email and looked at it and had a preview. Our, our kids last Sunday in Children of Grace studied this chapter, so they might even know it better than you do this morning. But as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we must understand something. Now, this is an enormous enormous chapter. And when you think about Samuel just as a whole, first and second Samuel, I'm pretty sure you can say, well, I, I don't know everything that's in there, but I know it's about the life of David. Uh, David's anointing is, is in there. Um, David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba. But many people don't know what is in second Samuel 7. This past week, I was struggling with 2 Samuel chapter 7, so I reached out to many of my Old Testament profs and asked for input and resources, and I asked them what their thoughts were on 2 Samuel 7, and this is what they said. 2 Samuel 7 is the most critical, most important, most theologically significant, most messianic, most worship-inspiring chapter in the life of David and one of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament. So after they said that, I just started kind of shaking because Sunday's coming, and this is a ginormous chapter. Now, with all that said, I'm really trying to temper your expectations because there's no way that we're going to be able to unpack all of the richness of 2 Samuel 7 in one sermon. Even if I had 70 sermons, it'd be difficult, and that is not an exaggeration. So what we're going to do this morning is Basically, take a bird's eye view of the chapter, and we're going to focus on one, 
overarching theme. Because although 2 Samuel 7 really focuses on David, he's not really the, the figurehead of the chapter. He's not the centerpiece of the chapter. The centerpiece is Yahweh, who is the covenant maker and covenant keeper. And so I've entitled this message, The King of the Covenants, because this chapter is about the king. And I'm not talking primarily about David the king, nor am I talking primarily about the covenant. In fact, the word covenant is not even used in this chapter. But I would say that this chapter is so significant because it's all about the king who makes this beautiful covenant. So would you join me and let's ask the Lord to bless our time as we dive in. Father, we so desperately need your help. So please give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, Father, the beautiful things that are in your word. Would you nourish our souls? Would you increase our faith? Would you drive us into further worship of your sovereign plan and your beautiful promises? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, here's our main idea. And this is uh, maybe a little bit longer because I wanted to try to get as much as possible jam-packed into this central idea. The main idea is the Davidic covenant is rooted in Yahweh's sovereign choice and faithful character to establish an everlasting dynasty through the lineage of King David, who was a type that pointed to the ultimate king, King Jesus. So we're going to take those 29 verses and jam-pack it into this statement. The Davidic covenant is rooted in Yahweh's sovereign choice and faithful character to establish an everlasting dynasty through the lineage of King David, who was a type that pointed to the ultimate king, King Jesus. And right away, you're thinking, oh man, this is like heavy-duty theology stuff. And what does this theology and covenant talk have to do with me? And my response to you would be that God's covenant people, which... If you are in Christ, you are. You should respond to God's covenant promises with praise and thanksgiving. But before we dive into the covenant proper, what we need to do is we need to give some, some background. So I'm going to do a little speed tour through First and Second Samuel. And I put it up here on the slide just so you can see that in First Samuel, chapters 1 through 7, Samuel, he becomes the prophet of God. And he becomes the national leader of Israel. And then you get to chapter 8 through 15, Saul becomes the first king over Israel and also the last king of his dynasty. He doesn't last very long. When you get to chapter 16, all the way through 2 Samuel 5, we see David's rise to the throne by God's anointing and his protection. And from 2 Samuel 5, 6, all the way through the end of the chapter is the story of David ruling as king over Israel. But in the six chapters that are um, before our chapter, chapter 7, we see all kinds of action going on. David, he conquers Jerusalem and finally makes it his capital city. He defeats the Philistines, something that Saul could never do. And then David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And those first six chapters are just fast-paced. I mean, it's like a montage, one thing happening after another. And the narrator, as he speeds through these events, fills us in with all kinds of action. There's wars and murders and assassinations. There's the rise and fall of a guy named Ishbosheth. 
There's two coronations of David and all the adventures of capturing Jerusalem and setting it up as the capital and bringing the ark to Jerusalem. And then when you get to chapter 7, there's a dramatic change. And we see that in the language. It's almost as if the author downshifts and slows down significantly. You see, those first six chapters are mostly narrated. But then when you get to chapter 7, what we have is lots of dialogue. The action decreases, the dialogue increases, and so David speaks, and Nathan speaks, and God speaks, then David speaks again, and the narrator kind of takes a back seat and just allows the dialogue to play out. Now, when a Bible writer does that, it should clue us to something, the slowing, the slowing down, the focus on the conversation, it should tip us. So this is very important. What's happening here is extremely important. And what we find is that this is really the, the bedrock of the messianic promise. And all of the glories of the gospel begin to unfold here. And the implications of this glorious gospel that's unfolding here has eternal consequences. That's how significant this chapter is. And just a way to help us understand the outline, we're going to put it in two major headings. First, we're going to look at the God of the covenant in verses 1 through 9a. We intentionally stop right in the middle of the verse. And then we're going to look at the covenant of God. And so we'll focus on first Yahweh's character. We're going to see that he's transcendent, that he condescends, that he is sovereignly gracious. And then we'll look at the covenant of God. So put your eyes there on verse 1, the God of the covenants. We begin here with Yahweh's transcendence. And we sung about this. He is so far above us and beyond us, both in his wisdom and his planning. And the opening chapter paints this picture here that all is well for King David. His military situation is stable. And it says there in verse 1, Now that it happened, when the king inhabited his house, and Yahweh had given him rest on every side from all of his enemies. How significant is this? David, what has he known all the way up to this point? He's running, he's hiding, he's terrified for his life. But finally, finally, he has rest. He's safe, he's secure, he's sitting at home. There's no trouble, there's no turmoil. Rest on every side. But while he's chilling in his custom cedar house, he realizes that the ark of God remains homeless. You see, he's sitting in this prestigious palace, and he looks on over to the tent, and it's all tattered and worn. And he realizes, wait a second, something's off here. Uh, I'm sitting in this glorious palace, and the Ark of the Covenant and the tent is in a mobile home. That's not right. And so David begins to think about the incongruency of this whole situation. David, no doubt, he's seen his neighboring countries and their magnificent temples with their gods. And he says to himself, those aren't even real gods. But we serve the true and living God, and he's in a portable tent. And so verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I inhabit a house of cedar, but the ark of God inhabits tent curtains. There's no way 
that I'm going to reside in a house of cedar while the ark, the symbol of God, the, the presence of God, the power of God is sitting behind curtains. This needs to change. And what we realize is that David's desire here is a good desire. He desires a good thing. In fact, we learn this from his son Solomon later on in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 18. We read this, But Yahweh said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well. You did well with what was in your heart. And so David's proposal to build a temple, it's a good thing. It's a logical thing. It's a noble thing. And David, maybe, because he's well-versed in the Scriptures, thought that he was fulfilling prophecy. You say, what do you mean? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, in verse 8, we learn that Moses prophesies that a time would come when God would, himself would choose a place for his people to come and to worship in a temple. Well, what's Nathan's response to this? The prophet, Nathan, hears it, the proposal. Sounds good to me. Look at verse 3. He responds to David's desire with these words. So Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. Seems simple enough. Reasonable. But notice that Nathan is so sure, he doesn't even ask the Lord. He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord, or that's a great idea, David, let me go consult with the Lord. He just says, go ahead and do it. I mean, after all, David's success, his desire to unify Israel, all of this seems like a big thumbs up. Now's the time. Let's go and accomplish this. But I want you to notice that this reasoning is overturned by revelation. You see, what's important is not David and Nathan and what they say or what their desire is. What's important is God's word and God's will. Look at how the Lord responds in verse 4. Now it happened in that same night that the word of Yahweh came to Nathan saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh, Are you the one who will build me a house to inhabit? You see, the Lord simply responds to Nathan and to David and the desire that they had with a question. And this is what he says, essentially. Not so fast. I want you to sit and consider what is going on here. While your desire might seem good to you, although it might seem like it'll bring me honor and glory, is it really the best thing? Are you the one to do this? You see, up to this point in Samuel, we've seen this time and time again. That man sees one way and thinks that this is the best thing, but yet God says, no, 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 no. It starts back in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. Eli thought Hannah was drunk. What is Hannah doing? She's praying. She's seeking the Lord. Man's not seeing the way God sees. And then it happens again when Samuel goes to David's house, and all the boys line up, and Samuel says, well, this has got to be the one. He's the biggest, the strongest, handsomest. It's got to be him. He's got to be the king. And you go all the way down the row, and it's the little runt David. And what does God say? Oh, God doesn't see like man sees. Man sees on the outside, but God sees the heart. And so once again, 
Man is planning. Man is seeing. Man is plotting. But it's not according to God's will and design. You see, God's plan is safest in God's hand. And here are two godly, well-meaning brothers, one God's king, another God's prophet, and they did not fully comprehend the mind and the wisdom and the intention of God. You see, in order for us to truly know God's will, we must have God's will revealed to us, which means that we don't just make assumptions. We don't presume upon God, but the right response is to go to God and ask God directly in humility and desperation, God, what is your will? What is your desire? Because what might seem right and expedient or even convenient could be dishonoring to him. And all this to say that God's ways are always superior and better and come with better timing and for our greater good than what we can ever imagine. He is a transcendent God, working so many things all at once, and we have no clue. Unless, of course, he reveals that to us. So his timing is perfect, his plans are perfect. They're beyond our comprehension. So those first verses, we see Yahweh's transcendence. Now let's look here at his condescension. He basically says, David, your master plan to erect this temple, it's going to have to be tabled for the time being because I got something else in mind. Look there at verse 6. We see here Yahweh's response really reveals his relationship to his people. He said, For I have not inhabited a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day, but I have been going about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. And I want you to see the significance of God's word choice. He begins with this word, yasab, means to sit or, or to remain or to dwell. And what God is saying is, look, I have not yet settled into a house because my people have not yet settled. That is what he's saying. And what's amazing here is that David and Nathan were convinced that Yahweh needed a place of his own to call home, that he needed a permanent residence. But, but God is, essentially says in response, well, my home is with my people. And if my people are traveling, then I'm traveling with them. And if my people are sojourning, then I'm sojourning with them. And if my pe people are pilgrims, pilgr how do you say that word? If they're pilgrims, I'm a pilgrim with them. So all throughout the wilderness wanderings, all throughout the instability of the judges, God is with his people every step of the way. And we just need to pause and say, what kind of God is this? But look what he says about himself. I dwell among my people. You remember back in Exodus, in chapter 13, in verse 21, we read this, that Yahweh was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might go by day and by night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And what we realize here is, oh yes, this God is different. He is transcendent, but yet he condescends. And we see that throughout the book of Exodus. We are taking um, several men through some elder training, and we're trying to get just big picture view of all the books of the Bible. 
And when you get to Exodus chapter uh, 1, uh, all the way through 18, there's something about God's character that comes to the surface. And it's that he's a deliverer. As he delivers the children of Israel out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And all this begins to take place at the bush where he reveals that he is going to come down and deliver them from Pharaoh's hand. Then you get to Exodus chapter 19, and you go all the way up to 24, and we learn that the transcendent God who's a deliverer also demands a certain kind of lifestyle. And so he gives the Mosaic law. The one who delivers the people should also require that they live a certain way. So he gives his demands through the Ten Commandments and the 613 statutes of the Mosaic law But the climax of the book of Exodus is not really about the deliverance, although that is a highlight, and it's not really about the demands, the law. What's really significant is the end of the book of Exodus, which is where God reveals that he is going to dwell with his people in a tent. So the deliverer of slavery and oppression and affliction and the demander of holiness and righteousness and perfection, this is the God who actually dwells with his people, and not just dwells among them, but dwells in them with them in such a way that he accomplishes both deliverance and meets the demands that he requires on them. So God's revelation of the bush is important. God's revelation up on the mountain is important. But God's revelation about this whole tent thing, dwelling among his people, it is unimaginable. And nothing like anyone had experienced in the ancient Near East. Because none of the false gods drew near to the people. But not so with Yahweh. He desires relationship. He's not ashamed to be among his people. The commentator, Dale Davis, says this, Can you not see the astounding condescension of our God here? How can this revelation fail to overwhelm us and move us to adorning tears? The God who will not enjoy rest until he gives his people rest. The God who stoops down to share the hardships of his people. The God who is not ashamed to say he has been traveling around in a tent with them. You see, the Condescension and the humility of this transcendent God seems just way too good to be true. But it gets better. But before we consider how it gets better, we can't miss an important point here. This transcendent and condescending God is the only one that takes the initiative to bring about his redemptive plan. And listen, he will not have it any other way. And it's subtle here, but when you think about David and Nathan wanting to build this temple, they would have went ahead and done it. And then what do you think they would have said? We did this. We have peace. We had a plan. We built the temple. But we did it for God. And Yahweh says, "Mm -mm. who's provided you peace? Who's protected you this whole time? Who is the one that determines the plan for building the temple? I do. And so that's why he asked this rhetorical question. Verse 7, look at it there in the text. Wherever I have gone about with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built a house of cedar? 
The answer is no, I, I didn't ask that of anyone. I didn't ask the patriarchs. I didn't ask Moses. I didn't ask Joshua. I didn't ask any of the judges. And I didn't ask you to go and build me a temple. And this begs the question, did David really think that he was doing God a favor by going off and building a temple? You see, I think it's possible that he was unwittingly influenced by the pagan religions around him. There's no shortage of temples. You have the temple of Dagon and Baal. You have all these false gods. And all the religions of David's day were exactly the same. They had one stipulation. You do something for your God, and God will do something for you. Just transfer that now to 2022. It's the same exact thing. Empty religion. You do something for God first, then God will come and meet you once you fix up your life. Stop doing drugs. Stop having sex. Stop cussing. Stop cheating. Stop lying. You get your life right, and then God will come and meet you. That's what religion says. And that's how they treated their gods. But that is not how Yahweh works. Yahweh is always the initiator. This historical snapshot is a picture of people trying to win God's approval. So empty religion says things like make a sacrifice, give a gift, offer up a child, build a temple, take a vow, and if you do that, I'll bless you. But Paul confronts this kind of thinking in Acts chapter 17 when he says, look, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. You know, the, the Puritans, they referred to this as the aseity of God. We actually sung about it and prayed about it. In Latin, it means from himself. And we consider the aseity of God, we're normally looking at his origins, that, that God is self-existent. He didn't get started. No one created him. He, cre he, he, he exists in himself. When you think of every other part of creation, we had a beginning and we're dependent, but not so with God. But it's not just when we think about his beginning his aseity means that he needs nothing. Which, bring that to you. Do you realize this morning that God does not need you? He doesn't. He's perfectly fine without you. Which should cause you to ask the question, why am I here? Why has he created me? If he doesn't need your help, your money, your service, your worship, why are you here? It is owing to God's sovereign grace. You have a transcendent God, but you also have a condescending God who delights to come and meet you and dwell among you. Yahweh's transcendence, his condescension, but let's consider some more of this grace. Look at verses 8 through 9. He rehearses his goodness to David in the past and then moves forward to the promises to David and Israel in the future. But look at the past grace there in verse 8. In plucking him from his father's house, 
So now, thus, say, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says Yahweh of hosts, I myself took you from the pasture from following the sheep. He doesn't just pluck him out, but he places him as king over Israel to be ruler over my people, Israel. He doesn't just do that, but he provides his presence. Verse 9, and I have been with you wherever you have gone. And he doesn't just provide his presence, but with his presence comes his protection. It says there that he has cut off all of his enemies before him. So Yahweh says, look, I created you. I chose you. I called you. I crowned you. I cut off all of your enemies. David, you're not the one that's building the house here. You're not the one that's doing me a favor. It is all owing to my grace. This idea that you're going to take care of me and, and build me a house, it's, it's cute, but, but Yahweh is saying here, I made you and your significance is wrapped up in that you are my servants. And listen, this goes for all the covenants that God has made. They're all owing to his grace. So you can look at all the covenants that God makes. He's the initiator, the establisher, and the completer. Think back to Abraham. It's not like Abraham one day woke up and said, you know what? I want to leave my pagan land and my pagan family, and, and I want to create for myself a, a huge nation, and I want to, to, to own a, a huge land, and I want all the peoples of the earth to be blessed through my seed. That was all God's doing. So David, like Abraham, Noah, and Adam, listen to this, they were all passive recipients of God's gracious covenants. And as you sit here this morning, you are exactly the same. You are passive recipients. wasn't owing to your intellect, to your spirituality, to your righteousness, to your goodness, to you figuring things out, God has extended his covenant promises to you by his grace. Now, up to this point, the focus has been on God's past graces. But now the attention turns to the astounding promises of his future plan. We looked at the God of the covenant. Now it's time to turn our attention to the covenant itself. So look there at 7, verse 9 the middle of the verse, where you see a, a shift in the verb form. In the middle of the verse, we see, yes, this is what God has done, but now there's the future, what God will do. And it begins with this. I'm going to give you a name. Speaking to David, I will make you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And when you think of the past and you think of Israel and you think of Saul and you think of the regular invasions and, and being infiltrated. Saul had a famous name, but it was for all the wrong reasons. Saul was known as a coward. He was disobedient. He was a homicidal maniac. And his reputation ended in tragedy because his lifeless body is hanging on the walls of Beth Shan. You see, David's name was already great. Because David had slain thousands upon thousands. People were chanting David's name, but he had no idea how great his name would be. Not only did God promise that he would give him a great name, but a place. 
He says in verse 10, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Not only that, but he would plant them. And I will plant them that they may dwell in their own place. Not only that, but he promises protection and they won't be disturbed again. And the unrighteous will not afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And you say, what is all this for? And it kind of culminates here at the end of the verse and says, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. And that word, first of all, it's the word Noah, which means rest. And it goes all the way back to Noah and all the way back even more to Eden when God promised to give his people rest. Because even in the initial creation of the world, God himself rested and created man and wanted man to enjoy this rest and relationship with God. But sin distorted everything. But God made a promise even then that one day there would be a great rest. And we say, well, how is all of this going to come about? This future promise of a name and a place and a planting and a protection and a permanent peace. How is all of this going to come? And here it is. It is a house that God is building. Look there. Yahweh also declares to you that Yahweh will make a house for you. I cannot even begin to unpack the significance of this. The word is by it. It just means house, but it could mean palace, it could mean temple, and it could mean dynasty. And I think all of those words are right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But this is the climax. You remember how all this started. David wanted to build Yahweh a house. And with a beautiful play on words, Yahweh says, no, 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 no. You are not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And what he's saying here is, I'm going to build you a dynasty. David, you are not the active builder. You are the passive recipient. David has in mind this beautiful temple that's made with hands. Yahweh also has in his mind a beautiful temple, but one not made with hands. The temple, David thought, was going to be physical stones. Yahweh says it's actually going to be people, and I'm going to lay that cornerstone, and it's going to be my son, the son of David. That's how Yahweh is using the word here. This dynasty, too good to be true. But it gets better because it's not a temporal dynasty. It's a perpetual one. It's going to last forever. Look there at verse 12. There's three dimensions that are given to this particular promise. And Dale Davis, again, the commentator, he calls them indefectible promises. Promises that cannot fail. The promise is protected, listen to this, against David's own death, the course of time, and even the corruption of sin. So in verse 12, we learn that death can't even annul God's promise. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, a euphemism for you die, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. 
So listen, David, you will die. You will be long gone. You will be buried. You will be dust. Your bones are going to deteriorate. But it doesn't matter. Because as you go down in the earth, I will raise up from you my own seed. This word seed. Where do you remember hearing that? How about Genesis chapter 3? where we learn that it would be the seed of a woman who would crush the head of a serpent. And Abraham, who's promised a seed. And this concept of a seed is safely carried all throughout the biblical narrative, all the way to Jesus. Now, you say, well, wait a second. How do we know if it's talking about Jesus or talking about Solomon? How do we make that determination? Because it kind of sounds like it's talking about Solomon, but it kind of sounds like it's talking about Jesus. And the reason why we come to the Scriptures, we don't start with Jesus, is because we have to understand the historical, cultural significance, the literary devices that are used by the authors before we make the jump to Jesus. Solomon is also a part of this, but ultimately there's a fulfillment in Jesus. So it's like a telescope There's a near and there's a far. And that is what God is doing here by relaying this covenant. But ultimately, ultimately, the kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And it doesn't depend on David's life because he will die and God will raise up this seed. But in addition to death, if death can't undo God's promise, then neither can the passage of time. Look at verses 13 and 16. The phrase that appears three different times is ad olam, forever and ever. 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So death has no dominion over the promise, but this dynasty is something that's gonna last forever and ever, and ever, and ever. But in order for there to be a dynasty that lasts forever, guess what? You need someone who's going to live forever. You need an eternal king. David's descendants, if we think about the history, they died. It stopped. You get to Zedekiah, who's the 20th and last king of Judah, He gets carried away to Babylon, gets his eyes plucked out, and then he dies. No one else has sat on the throne of Judah. So in order for this to come to fruition, there has to be someone who's going to live forever. You can't have an eternal kingdom without an eternal person, and that is Jesus. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. I love this. Hebrews 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. You see, Jesus 
He is the seed. Jesus is the eternal son. Jesus is the one who's overcome death. Jesus is the one that's not restricted by time. But also notice here in verses 14 and 15, the kingdom is not just impervious to death and time, but we learn that not even sin can destroy the promises of God. Verse 14, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will reprove him with the rod of men and the strikes from the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Again, once again, you have to view this this prophetic promise through the lens of a prophetic telescope. And when we trace the history of the kings of Judah, we see that the Lord over and over had to reprove the kings who were disobedient to the covenants. But God promised, I will discipline them with a rod. But even despite the sin and even though they needed the rod, I never revoked the promises. You know, after Solomon, there was only two kings that were consistently good, Josiah and Hezekiah. And that's it. But no matter how nasty the sin, God never nullified the promise. Even though many of the descendants of David were wicked, and even though many of them were judged and punished, God did not put an end to his promises. Think about that. For you, how disobedient have you been? Knowing the truth, at a time loving the truth, and yet at the same time disobeying the truth. How many times have you faltered and given in to the same old sin day after day after day? And yet if you are in Christ and a participant of the new covenant, there is nothing that you can do that will remove God's love from you. If he's adopted you, you are sons and daughters indeed. There is no cancellation of the covenant. God's promises are ear revocable. If you have Christ, you have all you need and you have all you need forever. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And the word he uses here is his his hesed will remain, his loving kindness. Sin cannot disrupt it. It will not destroy it. As Davis so powerfully states, sin can bring disaster on any current resident, but it can never demolish the house. You see, Yahweh's kingdom plan through David's dynasty is simply unstoppable. The promise will overcome death. It will outlast time. It will override the impact of sin. And all of this through David's seed. Do you see how amazing this covenant is? No man is coming up with this. We're not putting our heads together and creating a plan like this because it goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Adam and Eve, and then to Noah, and then to Abraham, and then to Judah, and now to David. Dr. Abner Chow, he kind of jokingly and playfully says, this is the covenant to rule them all. It was the son of David who was promised. He's the king The Psalms, the prophets, all of them pick up on this messianic language. They point to a future. 15 messianic psalms, like Psalm 2 that describes the Messiah as God's son. 
and hundreds of prophecies, hundreds of prophecies about David's son who would gather God's people, crush all of God's enemies, bring salvation, reign forever on the throne in his kingdom, and it will last without end. Now just imagine for a second, if you're David and you hear all of this, how do you respond? How do you respond to this amazing news? Look at verse 18. Then David the king went in and sat before Yahweh. The beginning of the chapter, he's sitting down in his palace trying to figure out what he can do for God. Now he's sitting down before Yahweh in absolute amazement. He's floored that the floodgates of God's grace have poured out on him. And the first words out of his mouth are, Who am I? O Lord Yahweh, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And read the rest of David's response. He says, I'm nothing, but you chose me. I was a little shepherd tending the flock, and you called me to be your servant. And I look back on all these years, and I could have easily perished multiple times over, but yet, God, you preserve my life, and you've made these promises to me, which are so, so good. And Christian, this is not just to dwell on the theology of of the covenants. It's to move you and to grip you to help you realize that these promises are for you as well. Don't think for one second this has nothing to do with you. This was 3,000 years ago, but your name is written all over this chapter. If you've trusted the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, that was fulfilled in the person of Christ, then you are part of the greatest story ever told. You're a part of the building, a part of the temple, part of the kingdom, servants of the king. You see, when we talk about the gospel, we say the gospel is an announcement. We are announcing to a world, to a dying world, a desperate world, that there is hope, that there is good news, that you don't have to get your act together in order to have a relationship with God. But God beckons you and welcomes you and calls you and your right response is to respond to his grace. So listen, have you responded to the son, the son of David, the fulfiller of the covenants? He calls, he convicts, he changes your mind, he causes you to believe, he conforms you to his image, and he compels us to live for his glory. It's all about him and his finished work. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah when he writes this, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely And this is his name by which he will be called Yahweh, our righteousness. How about Isaiah chapter 9? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will accomplish it. And just fast forward from those prophecies to a little town and a teenage girl and an angel who appears and says this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. That is how Mary was introduced to her Savior. Fast forward to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, the last chapter, and the very last thing that Jesus says, I, Jesus, sent my angel to bear witness to you of these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendants of David, the bright and morning star. From Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation, Jesus is the centerpiece of human history. He is the transcendent king that condescends. He reveals himself to his people. He rescues his people. He redeems his people. He delights to be in relationship with his people and to be so forever. Don't buy into the idea that Jesus is just some sort of miracle worker or philanthropist or philosopher. Jesus, the way the Bible describes him, is the only one that can satisfy your soul terrify all of his enemies, and perfectly reflect the glory of God. And he deserves all of our worship, all of our adoration, and all of our praise. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you are the king of the covenants. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel As Paul says in Romans 1, this is the gospel that was promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. And this gospel was concerning your son who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, who was designated as the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. O Lord Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for you. We're so thankful for the revelation you've given us that something greater than the temple is here, that something greater than Solomon is here. We thank you, God, that you've called us to yourself and we are ourselves, the church, we're being built into your own dwelling place. You are our temple and our priest and our sacrifice, all wrapped into one. You are our cornerstone. And Father, we thank you that we are the living stones being built up into your house. And Lord, now we have an opportunity to sing in response, just as David did, with so much joy and exuberation. We have an opportunity also, God, to see how you call people to yourself in the waters of baptism. So Lord, would you be honored and magnified as we respond 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.